0: Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast. We're glad that you've decided to listen in to this conversation and uh, we're going to continue talking about what's in Isaiah. We also do uh, welcome you to take part in the conversation in as much as if you have any ideas you'd like shared on the podcast or any feedback then uh, please email us at at gmail.com We try to remember give, giving that um, address at the end but we seem to forget so I'm going to throw it in at the start of this week's episode. And would be interested to to hear anything that that you had to say or any in, insights that you had. Uh, my name's Cameron, and I'm recording from down in very, very hot Tasmania. It's at least 27. <gasps> yes,
1: we, we did make it to 27 today, Cam. I'm Ken, uh, in the same spot.
2: And I'm Luke, quite a ways north of there.
3: And I'm Lachlan, uh, from Kurumbong. Very
0: good. Well... Uh, let's jump in with the passage. The lesson quarterly discussion addresses a range of chapters this week and pulls out a theme, a common theme through them, which is the theme of, of, what, of God's servant. Who is God's servant? What does it mean to be God's servant? What does God's servant do? Uh, hopefully we'll get to talk about some of these questions. We're not going to move through quite as many passages as the quarterly does, although we may refer to other sections that we don't read right now. But I'm going to start reading from Isaiah 42. And I will read through to verse 17. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his law the islands will put their hope.
1: Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor praise to idols. See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them.
2: Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them. Let the wilderness and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar live rejoice. Let the people of Sela sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountain tops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. The Lord will march out like a champion, like a warrior he will stir up his zeal. With a shout he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies.
3: He will say, I have long been silent. Yes, I have restrained myself. But now, like a woman in labor, I will cry and groan and pant. I will level the mountains and hills and blight all of their greenery. I will turn the rivers into dry land and I will dry up all the pools. I will lead blind Israel down a new path, guiding them along an unfamiliar way. I will brighten the darkness before them and smooth out the road ahead of them. Yes, I will indeed do these things. I will not forsake them. But those who trust in idols who say, you are our gods, will be turned away in shame.
0: Right. Before we talk about any new ideas any echoes in this passage of, of ideas we've already picked up so far in Isaiah
3: well I missed last week's conversation but I, I have listened to it and quite a lot of time was spent discussing idols and idolatry I found your comments really interesting and I hear idols come up a few times here Ken you mentioned um, the part of the Bible the part of the passage that you read I think mentioned idols in verse eight um nor share my praise with carved idols and this song of praise and of god's leading ended with the final verse verse 17 that i read with a really strange little caveat god says i'm going to do all of these great things but if you trust in idols and say that the idols are our gods you'll be turned away with shame
1: and and this comes after the end of uh Verse, uh, chapter 41 in which there's a discussion again about
0: idols it's also a repetition of the light and dark theme uh, i will turn darkness into light before them i'm reading from verse 16 and make rough places smooth and that actually continues on in the later part of the chapter which we didn't read um, where he complains uh, complains that his servants are blind and deaf and their eyes are sh- don't see, and their ears are shut. Don't know that and he wants them to listen and to see. Yeah, I don't know. if It's a complaint as such.
2: The later verses. Um, it's, more, it, it, it's more a uh, an entreaty, or you know, yeah, a
1: command. Yeah, I, yeah I, I I observe that it's also in verse eight and nine. Or verse eight, at least of chapter forty-three, uh, bring forth the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. So again, we're coming up with this theme, uh, and mm. and but this, th- there's a confusing bit here because, at least for me, I was, how on earth does this work? So verse seven, um, I will, I have given you as covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind. So everywhere else in Isaiah, we've got. Uh, people with eyes that are blind and ears that are deaf. Um, and indeed, in Isaiah 6, we had uh, almost deliberately closing the eyes so that they wouldn't see. Uh, and yet here in verse 7, finally, we have uh, the uh, uh, the servant opening the eyes that are blind and bringing the prisoners out of the dungeon from the darkness uh, in the dungeon. But then we come back in verse 18. Uh, Listen, you that are deaf and you that are blind, look up and see. So there's see. So again, uh, finally, we're again looking up and seeing. Who is blind but my servant or deaf like my messenger whom I send? Uh, So the servant, although opening the eyes uh, and uh, allowing others to see, appears to be blind and deaf. So
3: can that passage jumped out at me as well? Because it's um it's almost the same sentiment as the passage that Jesus reads at the start of his ministry. Uh I always turn to Luke for this in Luke chapter five. You're um <laughs> No not you, Luke. Luke chapter four, I'm sorry. Um Uh, where Jesus unrolls the scroll and he reads the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind Mm. so the um, the same passages are coming here that bit that Jesus reads from is Isaiah up in Isaiah 60 61 so we're going to have to hold off on commenting in detail until we get there in the next couple of weeks but What's interesting to me is that it's the same key ideas here of sight to the blind and liberty to the captives. interesting, free the captives from sieven, from
1: prison and, and interesting that 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 those things are associated with bringing forth justice
0: which seems to suggest hang on if if letting the captive free is consistent with justice, then surely that captive's captive is wrongfully imprisoned. <laughs>
3: Is that the inference? Maybe the blind person has been wrongfully blinded.
1: I recall sitting out in the Scottsdale Magistrates' Court, which is held in the council chambers at Scottsdale, a little town uh, east of Launceston. Um, And uh, I went into the courtroom and uh, the lights were on in the the room uh, everywhere uh, except over the bench where I was. Uh, And I uh, reflected on the fact that perhaps everybody's trying to keep me in the dark Uh, and they don't really want me to know Um, and that maybe the administration of justice required the judge to be a little blind. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I don't necessarily think that's true, but (laughs) it was a reflection.
3: There's part here at the start of Isaiah 42 that has me slightly puzzled. I don't think it's of immense consequence, but why is it that the servant... Whom God will strengthen, and who is chosen, and who pleases God, will bring justice to the nations, in verse 2, he will not shout or raise his voice in public. It goes on to say he will not crush the weakest reed nor put out a flickering candle, so it seems to be speaking of a gentleness. Maybe that's all there is to it, but coming in the context of a book of prophecies that are proclaimed and and oracles that have been delivered to nations uh, i get the feeling that Isaiah is full of of raising voice in public with proclaiming the word of the lord so i i just find it slightly puzzling here in verse 2 that that the god's servant will not shout
0: this passage i mean and we've noticed this elsewhere in the book that there seems to be sort of many what we would see as contradictory facets to to who God is and what he is and what he does that are seem, seemingly held next to each other with with no obvious sense of conflict in the mind of the author. Uh, and um, even within this passage, God lends himself to many metaphors, God and slash or his servant. I think sometimes it's not.
1: Well, but th- that's where there is a distinction, Cam, because the servant, he will not cry or lift up his voice... In verse two of chapter forty-two, but God, in verse fourteen, mm. has held his peace, and now He is crying out. Uh,
0: yeah, but before that, the Lord will march out like a mighty man, like a warrior. He will go out yes, and stir exactly. zeal. And the mighty man wreaks havoc and destruction. The woman in childbirth is bringing forth new life into the that world. That also world. wreaks They're havoc and quiet.
2: destruction. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean, that is, <laughs> well, that is the,
2: the metaphor in the passage. Um, but yeah, I was going to yeah. say there is a, a marked contrast between the behavior of the servant of God and God itself, which may tie into these concepts that we've talked about before, which is that you're not always... What is, what is moral and right for an entity like a creator God to do? And what is moral and right for us to do are different things because we do not have the knowledge or the goodness of a creator God. And so the the, the expectations of behavior are different, but I find it really interesting that it's the gentle behavior of the servant that brings justice. As opposed to any sort of uh, violent or forceful application of like, law like and order, the for West's,
0: example. The West's effort to bring freedom and democracy to the Middle East. Hmm. In written, I was trying in to be crude oil.
3: <laughs> No, that's a great point, Luke, because in verse 3, you know, following on exactly from this, the, the servant will not crush the weakest reed. So that's how gentle the servant will be. Um, you know, the the literal reading of that is, even when walking on the ground, we will walk so gently that that even the weakest reed underfoot will not be crushed. You know, it's a quite a it's quite an uh, a, an interesting, I think, an evocative image. And a there. dimly burning um, wick, but,
1: won't be quenched. Yeah, you know, you know, when you try and light a candle and the match is nearly out. And the and, and, and the wick hasn't quite caught, and it's almost there, <laughs> and and you know it's it's that sort of picture. You've you've got to treat that really carefully and gently, uh, so or, or or it'll just go out.
0: But if, this if you... is this is the problem. You go, Carl. This is this is the problem that we talked about earlier. Luke, you raised it in one of the passages where we were a bit concerned with God destroying one hundred eighty five thousand Assyrians, and we thought that might be a bit too cruel. That might be too much of the warrior. The going out and indiscriminately destroying his. Well, it's phones. even
2: worse than a warrior because a warrior a warrior, a warrior kills warrior, yeah. their enemies in battle. This was killing killing people, defenceless people in their sleep.
0: Yes, well, okay. exactly, and and but then but then if you then ask the question, uh, were these people truly innocent? Um, was was a net amount of lives saved by this process, or you know, was there some alternate reasons? You then run into the questions you raised, Luke. That well, there surely there are many other circumstances where where God could have intervened and killed one hundred eighty-five thousand people, or maybe them. less than that. Maybe just maybe just a handful a handful of people killed in the 1930s could have saved a lot of life.
1: Pick any, in in really. In the, in the, you say surely there must yeah. be circumstances, but. You, so you the problem is though
0: in this passage but the problem in this passage is that it's it's we find it hard to understand the warrior striding out to destroy enemies but the re, the restraint the gentleness of this servant is also hard to understand why is why is the servant so gentle if there's so much that needs doing if there's so much injustice if there's so much bad stuff going on why why doesn't he just come in and sort it out in other words it's god's restraint we're simultaneously complaining about two two things. God can't win. We're In one chapter, we're complaining that he does too much, and in one, we're complaining that he's not doing enough.
2: Well, I think it's worth distinguishing that the servant is not God. So maybe there's two different roles being played here.
0: Good cop, bad cop.
2: <laughs> More or less. And look, if you, if you take the passages about the reeds and the wicks, not literally, what it suggests is possessing possessing power um, but, but refraining from using it to hurt those who are weaker.
1: There's a wonderful phrase that I read somewhere and I think it might have been Brennan Manning um, in one of his books maybe the Ragamuffin Gospel or something like that where he spoke about the gentleness of true strength and I thought that mm-hmm. was just a really wonderful phrase and, and People who exercise power uh, need to exercise restraint in that power. And it's a, it's a significant challenge uh, in, of, of being uh, willing to um, withhold uh, the exercise of power uh, for the good um, of the individual and the community.
3: There is a huge validity in your, you know, we're just contrasting the gentleness and the strength. You know, the very first verse of Isaiah 42 is, is God saying, look at my servant whom I strengthen. Mm. And the, it almost seems as if the result of the strengthening of the servant is that the servant acts with exaggerated gentleness, with extreme gentleness. And the outcome is really interesting, too. The outcome is the servant, he will bring justice to all who have been wronged. And in verse 4, he will not falter or lose heart until justice prevails throughout the earth. Even distant lands beyond the sea will mm. await for his, his instruction. Now, what a mission that would this be This is for a God's picture sake. of global justice. This is not a picture of the restoration of Israel, it seems to me, in, in this passage. This is well, a, a it's, glimpse it's of the sort of global mission that we get in the New Testament. That
2: was very interesting in this chapter is it refers to islands multiple times. Why is it talking about the islands all the time? Because Israel, famously, not an island, didn't contain any (laughs) islands. The Jews were not seafaring
1: people like most of their neighbours were.
0: Maybe it's just a symbol for them for the distant and exotic.
1: The new revised standard version that I read from calls them coastlands. Um, Wherever you read islands in verse ten.
3: So I I... In verse 10, though, it does speak of those who sail the seas. Sing, all you who sail the seas. Mm. Is, that, is that a picture of Gentiles? As you say, Luke, the, the, well, the Israel, na- the, the Jewish nation are not a seafaring nation no. in the Old Testament.
2: They did live nearby seafaring nations. The Phoenicians, mm. quite famously, and the Greeks.
3: And whoever it was who was sailing the wrong way that Jonah was able to get on board their Felicians. boat.
2: with <laughs> I, I think.
0: Right, well, the, in terms of this sort of uh, contrast between the gentle and the fierce, uh, if you look at the start of 43, which is within the set of chapters discussed by the lesson, which but we've not read it, but it, I imagine our listeners would have heard the start of 43 before it's the passage, uh, fear not for I've redeemed you. Uh, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they'll not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy one of Israel, your savior. Mm. And then later on, it says, lead out those who have eyes, but are blind, who have, who have ears, but are deaf. All the nations gather together and all the peoples assemble, uh, i wonder whether so again, any of our a...
1: listeners can have some thoughts on this this eyes open and closed and seeing and not seeing and hearing and not hearing and, and and those sort of things that seems to keep coming up because we've we've discussed it quite a bit but i don't feel there's ever been any real resolution to it i wonder if there's some wisdom out there yeah. that uh, could our be shared with us yeah
0: can... Our trouble is, Ken, is that we've opened our eyes, but we haven't seen.
1: (laughs) Well, there you go. We're living (laughs) testament to the truth of these verses. (laughs) Yeah, we did touch
0: on that last week as well,
2: (laughs) that we have to be careful not to judge the contemporary audience of of these writings or speeches or whatever, however they were originally delivered, um, because, you know, it could apply just as much to us.
0: And the, the issue is, the issue is that sometimes God seems to be telling people to make, you know, intending Isaiah to make people's eyes blind. At other times, he's stating that people are blind. At other times, he's complaining, it seems, that people are blind when, when they should be seeing. At other times, he's sort of foretelling a, a distant time when people will be able to see. Uh, there's, you know, that phrase, in that day. Hmm. But the metaphor is not used in any sort of consistent context.
3: So you're drawing attention to Isaiah 43, Cam, made me glance over the page. And in Isaiah 43, verse 17, um, it's it's in the mouth of the Lord. It's recounting his agency and his power as revealed through the story of the Exodus. You know, I called forth the mighty army of Egypt with its chariots. I drew them beneath the waves and they drowned their lives snuffed out like a smoldering candle wick and it's just the repetition of that imagery which we only just commented on that was present at the start of Isaiah 42 and i wonder if it that's might fun. help us that's the bad cop because lock. because that is that's the bad not the pop.
0: servant it's not the servant who did that that's God himself uh, no that's right but is...
3: i wonder you know we were we were asking you know I was, we were commenting that taken literally this image of the snuffing out the the weak flame on a smoldering candle um, is an evocative image, but maybe it actually carries some Im- implications around, you know, um, the unjust or or just or something as big as the the taking of life. And so when when the snuffing of the candle wick at the start of 40, Isaiah 42, um, the servant he will not put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all who have been wronged. Is that is it possible to take that as being connected to you know he will not um, be blasé about the about the human life?
0: Yeah. I, I, I wonder was a flickering you could imagine a flickering candle being a sort of a, a, an idiom for life. Well,
2: it, mm. it is exactly that. We use that um, metaphor all the time. I I wonder if there's not a connection between the the end of forty two, and the beginning. In the the end, the beginning of forty two, sort of lays out what God does. If if we're saying you're looking at forty one, and we're saying that God's servant here is Israel and Judah, right? Sort of lays out what God wants, how God wants His servants to behave. And then if you go down to the end of forty two. It talks about, well, we're back to the bad cop, and it's as troublesome as ever, Cam. Hmm. Is there something... Look what it says in 24. It says, Who handed Jacob over to become loot, and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways, they did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. So it's that seeing but not understanding again consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. And I wonder if that's not a connection between. Well, here's what you should do. You didn't do it. Here's the consequences. I still don't understand how it's moral.
1: I, I, I Cam, also wonder. But- Go on. Sorry. No, that
2: that was it. But but I wonder if there's a connection there. Uh,
1: uh, this brought to mind seeing this. The uh, servant who brings justice uh, but, does it, but does it gently uh, and the God who acts uh, ferociously um, brought to mind Romans 12, the end of Romans 12, uh, in particular uh, 17 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. I love the fact that there's a, you know, you're really it's doing little, it just to get back. Make it even worse for him by being nice to him. <laughs> um, uh, do not be overcome well, also, by evil, but overcome evil ask... with good.
0: Um the, the burning coals is just a statement of fact.
1: Well, it is. It's a, it's descriptive, not prescriptive.
0: Yeah, It's descriptive, not prescriptive. That's a, that's a that, really that...
1: good connection, Ken. All right, sorry, you go, Ken.
0: Yeah. I was I was going to say, uh, Ken, I don't think you were there, but at Launceston Church, that was raised in one of the passages in an earlier week um, in our group discussion there, um, stating that all these passages that talk of God's vengeance... Uh, the intended effect of those passages is to make us less vengeful. Mm.
2: All yes, the, God's it, got it in exactly hand. Exactly. Don't you take it in hand? Exactly, as that passage—I mean, that passage said it, said it explicitly. Leave room for God's wrath, because He mm. takes the responsibility of delivering punishment. Uh, so that we don't have to take that responsibility. Because and that in, responsibility does bad things to us.
1: Indeed, because he takes responsibility, our role has to be, in essence, exactly the opposite. Uh, so that we feed our enemies. Not that we uh, destroy them or you know use an opportunity for revenge. We give them something to drink when they're thirsty. So that... Our role is to, in essence, bend over backwards uh, to make sure that right is done in every situation and leave mm. the consequences of other people's conduct to God.
3: And there's a very there's, interesting implication of there's this. Where
0: um, use restraint if we are to be God servant. Mm.
3: There's a very interesting implication of this. There are many examples throughout christian history of christians and christian leaders and christian communities feeling like they need to be the enforcers and i don't know we could pick so many different examples but but one which is somewhat topical would be the the issue of the involvement of and the inclusion of homosexual or trans transgender people in christian community and what I hear you saying suggests to me that we're better just to love them, feed them, clothe them, and include them, err on the side of inclusive, gentle love. And if if there is some problem, it's not our problem to deal with.
2: Well, look, um, in, in response to that, I would say verse 3 and 4 of chapter 42 of Isaiah. A bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teachings, the islands will Mm. be their heart. If that's our Mm. mission as servants of God, there's nothing in there about punishing people.
3: Somehow, this episode has brought to my attention the theme of flame and fire, uh, we commented on the candle and the candle's being snuffed out. If you look in verse um, end of verse thirty, sorry, end of chapter forty-two, they were enveloped in flames, but they still refused to understand. They were consumed by fire, but they did not learn their lesson. And four verses further on, three verses further on, in Isaiah forty-three, chapter verse two. Uh, When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. So they were consumed by fire Mm. in 42,
2: the last verse,
3: verse 25. And in 43, verse 2, the flames will not consume you. And it's difficult for me to see that it's talking about different groups of people because at the end of Isaiah 42, it's talking about... Yes, exactly. And Isaiah 43 flows on. But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. O Israel, the one who formed you, do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. This is a pattern that we've seen in other places, where there's a sort of almost a a, a structure of the rhetoric that sort of leads with what we are hearing as pretty harsh words, and then follows them up with a, with an almost undoing of those harsh words uh, or an inverting of them and I I don't know enough about it I'm not quite seeing it as a systematic pattern of say poetic or, or literary structure but I can't help feeling that if we were to focus in on just a couple of the verses which perhaps trouble us the most we we might not be really picking up the the broadest sense of what's happening here and the other reason that I have for saying that is you know the we liked the in isaiah 42 we liked the gentle servant at the start we weren't quite so fond on the um the warrior. lord marching forth as a warrior who's going to crush all his enemies and who's going to level the mountains and hills and blight all their greenery and yet the glue that joins those two passages together is the song of praise to the lord isaiah 42 verse 10 and till about till about 12 sing a new song to the lord sing his praises from the ends of the earth um clearly what is being described here as much as it is causing us a little bit of difficulty is in the mind of of the author here is a reason to give glory to god and to praise him and so i i i find that just well i find it a little bit difficult but i think i find it as a as a caution that's saying We shouldn't be getting, letting ourselves get bogged down in some of these um, elements of imagery that are that are not resonating quite as clearly, that are troubling us a little bit. Um, Not that all the troubles will just go away, but perhaps we're
2: Mm. Um, because grappling grappling with them is
0: Mm. if these passages are producing in us a contrary, perhaps even opposite effect to what they were documented by the author as having brought forth in him. So we have some response and our response is so different to the response of Isaiah who's writing this down, who's put this song of praise in the middle here. If if our experience is so different from his, then there must be something. It might be misreading a cultural idiom, uh, different values, different views of morality there's something that we're just not getting mm. yes and further and to so that
3: so you're right Luke we shouldn't just ignore it then and walk away we should actually use this as an opportunity to to let it trouble us um trouble us yeah sit with that but not ignore it but i think that we also need to um need to acknowledge probably that if as you said cam if we're reacting so differently uh it's it's inviting us to go back and maybe re hmm. reexamine it, try and understand well, th- a little bit.
2: I mean, there's also multiple things to understand in in reading the Bible. Um and nowhere is it implied that you're supposed to understand everything or or even capable of it, you know? So we can be reading this and we can be quite unsure about what the actual morality is and why some of these things are justified and why was it done this way and not that way and all of those things and yet we can at the same time be very clear on what we are expected to do because what i what i get from 42 there's a lot in and i don't understand but what seems really clear to me is what the expectations of my behavior as a christian or as a servant are so in, in practical terms, in terms of how I go and live my life, that is sufficient. Um, I don't necessarily need to understand the
1: other stuff um, um, to get that much. Um, there there are two things I want to pick up on that, Luke, because I think it's a really important point. Uh, and one is Second uh, Corinthians 2 and verse 5 uh, and following, Um uh, particularly verse 7, uh, he's talking about somebody who's caused grief. And he says, Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. So there's this, again, concept of uh, your role's not the punishment. Uh, your role's to affirm and love. Uh, and that's part of the gentleness, and indeed part of the bringing forth justice, because... Part of the bringing forth justice is not just the gentleness uh, for the innocent, but is also the punishment. And perhaps it is the gentleness of the servant and the restraint of the servant that makes way and creates room uh, for God uh, to do his work um, in judging. But uh, So that's one thing. The second thing is that gentleness involves a restraint in the way that communication occurs. So... I will not cry or lift up. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. And immediately that brings to mind. And I, in the, when I went looking for it, I just couldn't find it. But you'll remember the passage where Paul says, yeah, I did not come to you with, um, you know, fancy words and rhetoric and, and, and persuasive speech. um, But I just spoke the truth. Um, Now it seems to me that. So often what we try to do with what we call evangelism uh, is to, uh, in the nicest possible way, uh, present to people how uh, any alternative view to the one that is being proclaimed uh, must be absolute nonsense and this is completely and utterly watertight. Um, There is no other rational... Um, uh, view that can possibly be held, uh, so that in a sense we're we're forcing and compelling people uh, to come to a particular position uh, in a way that perhaps is inconsistent with Paul's approach uh, and is inconsistent with the approach of the servant in the start of Isaiah chapter 42.
0: If our message is obvious, then there is no need to say that it's obvious. So I mean when when you spend so much time I mean it's the this man doth protest too much when you spend so much time and energy saying the bible can only understood be understood this way and it is obvious if you just read it that this has to be the way the more the more that we say that the bible obviously means what we think it means uh, we, we completely the, the undermines the less
2: compelling we are mm. Mm. the um. less
0: less compelling we are uh, it, it's like when someone says to you um is like when someone says you no offence, but yeah, I mean, really, Every- or I mean, not, not to not be offensive. political, but Or
2: I'm not a yeah. racist, but etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, but et cetera. Yeah, 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 if you have to say so, but, in fact, yeah, and really if you have to
0: qualify say. what you're saying, then be careful how you're qualifying it because it might reveal a, a lot more. I I am not so sure, Luke, that I, although I, I agree with the point you made about it's very obvious that our role is to be significantly more gentle than God. in as much as we do not have the wisdom and insight to make some of the difficult decisions, we should just leave them to God. We do at least know that treating people kindly is something that God likes. So I think, I think that's a strong point. But what we've read in the book of Isaiah so far is God's interactions at a very large scale in the world of the author, at the level of nations and ideologies and big groups. And... Uh, Isaiah is God's servant, and in his way he's trying to work with God to achieve his ends. Uh, What is God doing in the world right now, at that level?
1: Uh, And perhaps that's where we come to say, at that level.
0: um... The big picture, scheming, big groups, nations, all that sort of stuff.
1: I'm not sure that we can say, which is perhaps why uh, we are to behave as the servant at the start of Isaiah 42.
0: Yeah. Because I, I, I do, I mean, the news feed, I mean, it's almost certain. Not the Facebook news feed God, as of today, Cam, I'm not, sure. Not the Facebook yeah. news feed, am Not on Facebook. But um, I'm sure, I'm, I'm not certain that if God was active in the world Everywhere, as I, I think he probably is. I'm not sure that it would feature in a news feed. Or that even so, if it
2: did, you'd understand it.
0: Or even if it did, that I'd understand because I'm sure that the great triumphs that God is most proud of may be small triumphs of people against difficult odds and, and we may never hear of them. But but that's not what Isaiah's talking about. It's not talking about those. He's talking about God being involved at a really big, at the sort of level that would be reported in a newsfeed.
3: Well. The, yes and no. So here's a, here's a little theme um, that is picked up. So in the verse that we read in Isaiah 42 um, that comes just after this this laboring mother imagery. Um, so Isaiah 42, verse 15 and 16. So I will level the mountains and hills and blight all their greenery. I will turn the rivers into dry land and will dry up all the pools so there's, um, you know, geoengineering with the levelling of mountains and hills. There is biological destruction with the, rem- the blight of their greenery. Incidentally, look, is the the...
0: geoengineering is also in direct contrast with a whole bunch of passages in Isaiah where God says that he will turn the desert into a well-watered place. That's where I'm going. All That's right. where I'm
3: going. So if you'd step back to Isaiah 41, there's actually a similar sort of thing... Um
1: while you're going back there like I think it would be important to point out that if that's what God is doing then uh, uh BHP and the manufacturers of agent orange are uh, no doubt doing God's work.
3: Well no, see I'm not entirely sure that they are Ken. So the I was looking for for one thing that I can't quite find but if we jump straight into um Isaiah 41 verse 17. You've got this whole thing inverted. God's actions are now upside down. But but it's who he's doing them to. So now in, in Isaiah 41 verse 17, when the poor and needy search for water and there is none and their tongues are parched from thirst, then I the Lord will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will never abandon them. I will open up rivers for them on the high plateaus. I will give them fountains of water in the valleys. I will fill the desert with pools of water. Rivers fed by springs will flow across the parched ground. I will plant trees in the barren desert. So, it's everything. It's the high plateaus, so it's the mountains and the hills. It's the dried up rivers, which are now being rivers made in the dry places. It's the um, blighted greenery that is now being upended by the planting of trees ah, in the barren there's desert. There's another
1: wonderful connection there. This this does give us some insight, uh, Locke. Thanks for raising that. Because when God uh, comes and does those things for the uh, the poor and needy, for the thirsty, um, and opens the rivers and the fountains, and uh, puts a pool of water in the wilderness, and on the springs on the dry land the next part of verse of chapter 41 is to point out the futility of idols um, so set forth your case prove, prove it, come on, prove you idols, prove what you can do make us terrified, do all of that um, you're nothing. your work is nothing at all and when you look at what is happening where God is laying waste to the mountains and hills and drying up the herbage, verse 17 specifically says, these are the things that I will sixteen. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. They will, shall be turned back and utterly put to shame. Those who trust in carved images and say to cast images, "You are our gods."
0: Um, uh. So it seems then, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna interject here, Locke, with with what I think possibly should be the beginning of our closing comments. I'm keeping an eye on the time.
1: But we haven't said anything one, about one... servants yet and servanthood and servant leadership. But
0: well, that was that was what the whole episode was going to be about, Ken. We'll, I right. we'll have to leave our listeners to... Uh, the one thing that seems to be emerging as a theme then across the is that God does not respond to all people in the same way. And in particular, God has heroes, people he's, he's really proud of, people he's wanting to help, people he wants to support... People who need nurturing and protection. They're the people that that he is proud to be associated with. And he has some people who really drive him to I was gonna say drive him to drink. That's not that's they don't drive him to drink, but but that's the sentiment. They frustrate him. They they, they, they drive
3: not, him to blight all the greenery.
0: <laughs> they drive him to blight all the all the greenery. And the point that Isaiah makes here as as he makes elsewhere is that the people that receive God's blessing are not the people you would think if you saw them and saw what cars they drove and how secure they were and you know how well off or or you know um, powerful or influential they're not the people that you would suspect necessarily. And that, that mm. God just sees, and it's not surprising that the book puzzles us a little bit, if God really just does see the world, particularly human behavior and morality and and what's good in both the moral sense and in the um, sort of like what's pleasing uh, sense, if God just sees the world differently, then obviously, and he deals with some people in this way and some people in that way, Then obviously the account is going to be, appear inconsistent if you were going to try and find one rule to describe everything that God does um, there's, there's not going to be one rule uh, and it made me think of the uh, Beatitudes because this is essentially what Isaiah is saying is he says that the people who are poor in spirit are blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven the people who are poor, uh, poor in spirit it is their interests that are being pursued by servants of the kingdom, by God and people who are on God's side are working to support those who are poor in spirit. It's the people who are mourned. It's the people who are meek, uh, the people who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, the people who are merciful, like the, the servant that we read about, uh, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness.
2: Hmm. Hmm.
3: I like you connecting it to the that, Cam, and given the time, if I may be so bold as to suggest a possible conclusion to our concluding remarks, mm. we haven't spent a lot of time looking at the theme of servant specifically, but it, it's permeated what we've been looking at as and we we didn't get a chance to look at the fact that in Isaiah forty one God's servant seems to be describing a people, a group of people, the the people of Jacob. Um In Isaiah 42, God's servant was described with a singular pronoun. He will do this and he will do that. And this tension between the collective and the singular, of course, echoes a tension that we've explored over recent episodes um, throughout the whole book of Isaiah. And it continues for the following couple of chapters. And in Isaiah 49... There's an interesting thing said, and I would like to propose that one thing, it doesn't resolve the tension, but one thing we can take from the tension between God's servant being people collectively and being an individual. Obviously, there's a messianic element to this, an application in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. And I think that that is um, very clear and very strong. But we can take from the ambiguity the blurring of the singular with the collective, that maybe we, can, we are being called to identify with this servant. And what happens to the servant in Isaiah 49? The servant replies, But my work seems so useless. This is 49 verse 4. Mm. I have spent my strength for nothing and to no purpose. Yet I leave it all in the Lord's hand. I will trust God for my reward. There is a sense of, I haven't actually done very much. God is big and I have had lofty goals and things in mind. And I really, I've been limited
0: mm. by
3: my humanness and I don't feel I've actually achieved anything. And what does God say in verse eight? So verse six of Isaiah 49, God says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. I hear that as God saying, Hey, I'm not sure that you were in the right position to evaluate how effective you were as my servant. I am blessing you profoundly. Stop measuring yourself the way that you think you are, you are trying to measure yourself. And remember that I'm the one who measures you. And I am blessing you abundantly. And you are part of my mission to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And I know that this is applying to the ministry of Jesus. But I also feel it as an encouragement to those of us who are following God in the way of Jesus. As we attempt to be God's servant and we choose to align ourselves with God's kingdom, it can feel futile and it can feel like we're not getting very far. And I find great encouragement in that idea Mm. that God might be, you know, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. You will do more than you think you have achieved.
0: Mm. Well, let's leave it there in the oh, interest of time. We, we, don't, we don't have, have time made, for
2: a conclusion of a conclusion of a conclusion?
0: <laughs> if it's if it's very quick. I'm <laughs> joking. Go ahead. Tom. Okay. okay. Um, oh, yes. well, all I was going to say is that anyone's welcome to send in their own concluding comments as always and uh, that if you uh, if you enjoy this podcast, you're welcome to share it with your friends and if you find it utterly abhorrent, you're welcome to share it with your enemies and uh, we hope that you join us next week. I'm afraid we're not bringing much light uh, to, the, to the book. Um, I've actually been surprised at how many sort of complicated or difficult ideas I've always thought Isaiah was a bit of a tame yeah, book. a bit
1: straightforward. And <laughs> a bit
0: straightforward, and I've, I've been disabused of that notion. So uh, I'm learning lots, or perhaps unlearning lots. Uh, we hope that uh, you are too, and uh, please join us again next week.